Pot on the Tyne is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hi there, I'm Taylor Payne and I'm here to tell you that the podcast you're about to hear is not an episode of Pod on the Tyne. Instead, it's the first episode in a brand new series brought to you by The Athletic called Beyond the Headline. And the first three-part series focuses on the takeover that never happened at Newcastle United this summer. And don't forget, for a limited time only, we're offering listeners the opportunity to subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Newcastle pod to sign up. That's theathletic.com forward slash Newcastle pod and pay just £1 a month. It's all part of the Mike Ashley legend. Joe Kinnear getting appointed for a second time is just, is probably up there among the most baffling. Today we'll print the absolute truth. You think we're we can I think that was about as good as it got. The away game where he necked a pint in about five seconds. You're born a magpie, you're born to support Newcastle United. It's something that's kind of given me sleepless nights. Until he goes, the club can't get any better and it never will get any better. That's me done. That's me done. Mike Ashley has owned Newcastle United for 13 years. The club has technically been available to buy for another willing investor for almost all of that time. Prospective suitors have come and gone, who either didn't have enough money to tempt Ashley or didn't have enough money full stop. But for a lot of that time, there was a real sense that Ashley didn't actually want to sell. And he still believed there was some value to holding on, despite his universal unpopularity among the fans. Over the course of the next three episodes, you will hear from the people who have been there and gone through it all. They will tell you what happened, why it happened and what hope there is for the future of Newcastle United. I'm your host, Adam Leventhal, and this is Beyond the Headline. It's just integral to people's lives. It's not like you're a Londoner and you've got 10 clubs to choose from. You're born a magpie, you're born to support Newcastle United. I remember the concrete steps and I remember the, the faint whiff of a gentleman's urine uh, and you know the, the onions and the bovril and all that but then just seeing this flash of green and floodlights and just being totally mesmerized by it i just remember thinking how real the players were if that makes sense because you had all you know you had fastino Aspria, les ferdinand alan shearer they were, they were more like demigods than humans to a kid in Newcastle at the time. If you drop a pebble in a pool and you look at the ripples coming out, you know, the the reach of Newcastle United, even before football was on the television, was quite far and wide across the northeast, right up to Scotland. And I just feel that it was just it was just like a rite of passage, you know, you 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 went to school, everybody supported Newcastle, apart from in those kind of dodgy areas like South Shields and, you know, where some people support Sunderland. And just the whole the whole family, you know, 
know, the whole family got behind Newcastle. You know, we, we all read the pink paper. Working class culture in the northeast was steeped in supporting Newcastle or Sunderland. Newcastle United are one of the biggest football teams in England, with one of the most underwhelming track records for recent success. It wasn't always this way. Between 1905 and 1909, they won three league titles, with another one following in 1926. They won three FA Cup finals between 1910 and 1932, and another three between 1951 and 1955. But, with the exception of the long-defunct Intercity Fairs Cup in 1969, that's where the glory stops. In 1992, everything changed. Kevin Keegan, a hero on the pitch in the early 80s, returned to lead the team out of the second division and straight into title contention, fighting tooth and nail with Sir Alex Ferguson's Manchester United for supremacy. Keegan's team were the most exciting English side of the 1990s, but they always fell just short, and he left the club empty-handed in 1997. A series of successes, including the legendary Sir Bobby Robson, managed to restore pride and challenge for silverware again, but the golden age was over. English football had changed profoundly unfashionable in the 1980s, now everyone wanted a piece of the Premier League. In 2003, the US Glazer family acquired Manchester United. Roman Abramovich bought and transformed Chelsea. And then, in 2007, Newcastle United attracted their own billionaire buyer. This one, however, was a little different. The Athletics senior writer Oliver Kay explains. The point when... Um Mike Ashley arrived. They'd um, they'd had a sort of two or three years of uh, of relative struggle under um, you know, Graham Souness and Glenn Roder, and there was a sense that they'd gone from being a top six team and a team that was reaching cup finals regularly to being a team that had fallen away a bit. And I remember I was away at the time the the takeover happened, and there was a lot of positive positive publicity around it and um, everyone knew about his wealth and obviously Sam Allardyce had just been appointed and there was a sense really that, that Newcastle were, were going to kick on. The Athletics Newcastle United correspondent Chris Woff. For when Mike Ashley first came in there was excitement, there was a, a, a British billionaire coming in, coming and buying the club, he'd spoken about big ambitions and I think that both sides got a bit of a shock in, in the short to medium term, but certainly Mike Ashley did without ha- having famously he didn't do his, his due diligence, and he, he found out that uh, once the club was bought, that actually there was some uh, there was a loan through Barclays which had been uh, taken out to finance the redevelopment of St James's Park around the turn of the millennium, and that if the club was bought out, then that was repayable within 60 days. So he actually had to pay a lot more money for Newcastle than he thought he had, and it wasn't quite the bargain club, I think, that he'd uh, he'd, he'd factored in. But what made Ashley take the plunge? Matt Slater, football news and investigations reporter for The Athletic, explains Mike Ashley, the businessman. You know, if you, if you track his business career, there's, there's an element of, of chippiness about it. There's a lot of bravado. A lot of making decisions quickly, getting results fast. There was an obvious connection between, you know, what he flogs and, uh, and and a football club. I think he correctly spotted that only a football club could be a really good advertising uh, vehicle. And I think he got involved at a time when entrepreneurial Brits could still afford football clubs. I mean, he's... He's almost a bit of a kind of dinosaur in that regards. I mean, we've moved on to sovereign wealth funds and oligarchs and, and, and hedge funds. 
he has a reputation for being, uh, and this is a, a well-deserved reputation for being, you know, nimble, fast, corporate raider, uh, makes his mind up quickly. It's all part of the the Mike Ashley legend. I suppose you could say there's there was a sort of irony in the way that he arrived compared to certainly compared to what's happened more recently because it he came completely out of the blue, unlike sort of every takeover attempt at Newcastle since. Senior writer at the Athletic, George Culkin. And it felt like that there was a form of logic in someone like Mike Ashley getting involved, who A was pretty rich, B had a sportswear retail firm and it felt like that there was a sort of logic in that you know the extent extending it by buying buying a club so what was the fans reaction to mike ashley's arrival host of pod on the tyne podcast taylor payne we didn't know anything about mike ashley we didn't know who he was we didn't know what his background was we just knew he had an awful lot of money and we wanted him to spend that on our football club you know former board member with the newcastle united supporters trust Linda Bush. A billionaire, you know, it's just, this is it. This is this is our time, you know, it's just going to be amazing. So, yeah, I, I was caught up in that. And I think a, a lot of Newcastle fans were absolutely 100% caught up in the whole billionaire money status. This was going to transfor- transform the club. The new era started well enough. After persevering for five months with the manager he inherited, one Sam Allardyce, Ashley swung the axe for the first time in January and brought Kevin Keegan back to the club. Chair of the Newcastle United Supporters Trust, Alex Hurst, explains. It was a euphoric feeling because because I was too young to remember Kevin Keegan at, at the club. Everything you see at Newcastle United now he built with Sir John Hall, you know, the, the stadium wouldn't be there. Uh, the Champions League nights wouldn't wouldn't have been there. Uh, Alan Shearer wouldn't would never have come to the club. All these kind of things which create modern Newcastle United and its its mythology and its reality are down to Kevin Keegan. So the fact that he came back just it made a lot of sense to uh, a 19 year old or whatever it was at the time. It was uh, it was a perfect fit. And we genuinely thought it was the start of a new era. Slowly but surely, obviously that started to all unravel and, and Mike Ashley had a, a very different idea about what Newcastle United could be than, than what the fans did and than what Kevin Keegan did as well. And it and it was it was a shame, you know. Uh, but that that first that first season when he took over, the, the possibilities were, were there. But obviously Mike Ashley's ambition didn't match ours. It was it wasn't a great marriage, was it? George Culkin. It just fell apart so so quickly. I mean, you can look at any number of things. The return of Kevin Keegan, it was it was kind of laughed at, I think, from outside the region. Inside Newcastle, it felt like a very important moment of uplift because it was that sense that, again, you know, it was very romantic, but the sense of unfinished business. It was a beautiful moment, and of course that fell apart very quickly. And at the start of the following season, when you've got Dennis Wise in an executive position at the club, you've got uh, you've got players coming in effectively above Keegan's head. You know, the moment he resigned, he walked away, and the sort of real bitterness that followed that was really was the point where you knew that things were going to get very bad and then from that you know that season was just such a toxic I mean it's the most unbelievable season I think I've covered and you know there have been a few of those Chris Woff basically that was the 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 very beginning of the end for any positive relationship he's going to have with Newcastle United fans that the Kevin Keegan was was an icon he was a really 
a figure who Newcastle fans absolutely lauded and yet within a few months of him being brought back to the club by Mike Ashley, Mike Ashley had also distanced this club legend, someone who then made it clear he didn't feel welcome at the football club where he was loved anymore and so from that point having tarnished the club's relationship with one of the legends that the fans really began to turn. And who would replace club legend Kevin Keegan? That would be Joe Kinnear. I I remember I remember it vividly. Yeah, I remember just kind of going, "What, Joe? What? What? Kinnear? What? What?" <laughs> and I just I just remember uh, I remember thinking, "Well, that's us. That's us knackered then. That's us completely knackered." Joe Kinnear coming in to replace Kevin Keegan. I mean, extraordinary in that and that. You know, they're kind of just the tsunami of bullshit that kind of came out of the club. You, I mean, often from Joe Kinnear, you know, saying that there was a takeover around the corner and that Alan Shearer was waiting around the corner and Kevin Keegan was waiting around the corner and it was all going to happen. And it was just, it was just nonsense. Joe Kinnear's first press conference was quite something. Right, who's the front Simon Burke? Me. Who? Okay, send it to your face. Good. Right. Okay. Niall Hickman. It's me. Fucking out of order. Absolute fucking out of order. George Culkin was there. He had done a kind of huddle after the match, bef- after the preceding match, and that was where the that was kind of where the contention originated from because he basically sort of said that players would be given a day off and then they would report back. And so what what happened was a couple of the tabloids wrote that his first day at work would be a day off, and that was. That was kind of where the his annoyance came from. And so at his first set-piece press conference, he came in and started demanding, you know, who wrote this, who wrote that? And, you know, again, that sort of tirade, you know, tirade of, of swearing kind of came. I mean, and I'm not sure... It, it, was, it was astonishing. I'm not sure what his sort of aim was. I don't think he ever... He, he ever really had one. No, the fact that you're fucking saying that, that I turned up and they, and they fucked off. I fucking read it. I fucking read it. It doesn't say that. I read it. It doesn't say that. You're fucking trying to undermine my position already. No, no, you read it. It doesn't say that. I knew you knew. Fuck off. I don't know if he was trying to intimidate people, but it just had the opposite. It was had the opposite effect. The one thing I do remember is that I was the only journalist who swore back at him, but I was I was quoting I was kind of quoting him and he basically said, Oh, you can write what you fucking want and all that sort of stuff. And I sort of said, Okay, so you're you're happy to be quoted calling us then or whatever and all that. Today we'll print the absolute truth. You think we're we can all fuck off and we're slimy, is that fair enough? Do it. It sort of feels funny now, and it wasn't at the time though, and it wasn't funny when he came back as director of football it did actually feel humiliating and it felt embarrassing Kinnear didn't last the season on April the 1st 2009 Newcastle United appointed Alan Shearer and it was music to supporters ears Taylor Payne Alan was my was my hero you know he was my god he was the he was the player that I loved the most out of anyone who ever pulled a black and white shirt on and at the time I was excited at the time I thought if anybody knows what this means it's Alan Shearer but in hindsight he didn't have an awful lot of time to sort this out to sort things out and he was left with such a mess 
that, you know, I don't think anybody could have helped us at that point. But I mean, it's easy to kind of for me to kind of pull the to pull the blame away from Shearer, and he had people like Ian Dowie with him as well as because it was his, he'd never managed a club before. He, you know, I think Shearer was brought in as a motivational appointment more so than anything else. But I don't think it was what we needed at the time. I think we needed a firefighter. We needed somebody to come in and sort things out and get the team winning again and get the team playing. So it was a really difficult one for Alan Shearer to walk into, and I think probably looking back, he re- he would regret taking that on. Talked to him about that, and I've you know I interviewed him. I've interviewed him this this season, and we t- we spoke about that. He always had that feeling that he would go he would go back into it. He loved it. He really enjoyed it. He loved that feeling of uh, you know going into work and there being something to. To, to, to sort of problem solve and he definitely had that itch. Senior writer at The Athletic George Colkin outlines how Alan Shearer's tenure ended without a word. The season finishes, Newcastle will go down, Ashley releases this statement saying, you know, apologising for the many mistakes and saying Alan Shearer, you know, Alan Shearer was the best, one of the, I think it was, you know, to, to, to sort of paraphrase, Alan Shearer was one of the it was the best thing that I've ever done. And he'd had a meeting with Shearer and Shearer had very clearly stated what he wanted to happen and what he felt needed to happen. And he just never got a phone call. He never got a phone call. Alan Shearer was replaced by Chris Hewton. Chris Woff picks up the story. If you look back at Chris Hewton's time at Newcastle, the he'd come in as an assistant coach and and during the summer of 2009 when Newcastle were relegated and Alan Shearer had had made a proposal to to stay on as manager and he claims that Mike Ashley had basically told him he would call him and and, and he never received that phone call. So Newcastle were in turmoil that summer and Chris Hutton almost became manager just by default because there was nobody else there and he wasn't actually appointed as permanent manager until the October of that year, yet he managed to guide Newcastle back to the Premier League and you speak to the likes of Joey Barton, Steve Harper, Kevin Nolan, the big personalities in that team and they will tell you that Chris Hutton's management, the way that that quiet man that he is but the ability to really mould all those big personalities together, that was essential for bringing Newcastle back to the Premier League. It wasn't all bad as Taylor Payne, lifelong Newcastle United fan, explains. I mean I have to be honest, the, the season of the Championship, I bloody loved that, that season, it was great. I got to go to games every week. I was, I was, you know, it was just brilliant. And I got to go to away days to grounds I'd never been to before and stuff like that. From a from a purely football fan point of view, it was great fun because we were winning. We were winning all the time and we were battering teams and, you know, we were doing really well. And Chris Hutton, for all he was, you know, he was a, a very nice, gentle man and you never really saw him lose his temper. He had the team playing the right way. But they also had that nucleus of senior players who were very much guiding the ship. But within six months of securing promotion back to the Premier League, Hewton was sacked. I felt awful for him. I felt awful for him. It was Christmas time, I believe, when they did it. I think it was December. I felt terrible for him. I didn't think he deserved it. I thought he was treated really badly by the club. And I thought, I just thought, this, this, this nobody deserves this. Nobody deserves the, this after how he's performed. I thought he deserved a crack at the a crack at the main job and a, a chance to keep it going and see what he would have achieved. You know, it was like shooting a puppy, I suppose. It was horrible. <laughs> it was really horrible. He was so nice. Alex Hurst. Chris Hutton basically came in and performed a miracle, bringing, albeit a talented team, but a team in absolute disarray straight back up. He then had the team, what, 13th or 11th in the league, and he was sacked. And supposedly he was sacked because they felt that key players had 
too much influence in the dressing room. In December 2010, Hewton was replaced by Alan Pardew, and it got off to a good start. The season we finished fifth was was fantastic, and the players that we had alongside, uh, you know, with Graham Carr alongside him, bringing in, scouting the players and bringing them in, and we, we got some amazing deals for players who really probably shouldn't have been there, but Graham Carr and all of his contacts managed to find loopholes and buyout clauses and all that sort of stuff and we we built this team of really good players and you know within a hair's breadth of getting into the Champions League I mean on the last day of the season we still had a chance of getting in the Champions League Michael Cox the Athletics tactical analyst explains why it worked under Pardew I'd say it was probably a combination of three things I think one the recruitment at that time was very good particularly picking up players from Ligue 1 uh, who often seem to be a little bit undervalued um, I'd say the second thing was at times Pardew did well uh, on a tactical basis. I remember the 3-0 victory over Manchester United, I think first game of the new year um, at St. James's Park. I remember that as a game where they just got things right tactically in terms of pressing very high in the early stages and making it difficult for Manchester United's midfield. And the third thing I'd say is I think that was the first season where I'd seen the use of kind of shot locations used in relation to a team's performance um, and the statistical analysts or boffins as they are often referred to uh, seem to be saying and this wasn't an argument I was familiar with because like I said it's the first time I'd really seen it but they were saying that basically a disproportionate number of Newcastle's goals had been, come, had been struck from long range or they were just kind of incredible unrepeatable goals so I mean the obvious example is that Papi Cissé swerver away at Chelsea Cissé there was a Johan Kabay free kick in that goal against Manchester United. Hatem Ben Arfa's dribbled through the defence against Bolton. Ben Arfa, he's away from Ricketts. Now then, Cissé wants it played through now and Ben Arfa delays it. Ben Arfa all the way. What a goal! Hatem Ben Arfa! A magnificent goal! There was just a lot of kind of goal of the month contenders, which obviously is very spectacular to watch at the time, but maybe isn't sustainable over a, uh, a longer period of games. So, yeah, they were probably just doing things that were never likely to uh, to succeed or, or to be successful in the long in the long run. But it was never set to last. Taylor Payne, as is always the case with Alan Pardew, always in every job he's ever had, you get a little eighteen month golden period when everything's rosy. And then suddenly, you know, the, the, the smell of shit starts to appear and, th- <laughs> and things start to go downhill. We were appalling at times. We were, we were really bad. We had an awful record for, for a couple of years after that. And when he went, it was time for him to go. In fact, the time for him to go was about six months before he went, but he hung on. During Pardew's reign, Mike Ashley changed the name of the stadium from St James's Park to the Sports Direct Arena. And the fan reaction was, well, hear for yourself. It's a bit like somebody coming in and renaming your child. That's exactly, that's exact. That's the most Mike Ashley thing he would do. He's, Sports Direct is more important than him to anything else in the world. And he already had it slapped all over the stadium. He had it painted in 50-foot letters on the roof of the Gallagher stand. For whose benefit, I have no idea. Probably TV cameras. It was just too... That was too far, you know? It was a step too far. There were a lot of things that seemed deliberately antagonistic by the owner of the football club, which just seems bizarre. But the amount of... of, You know, we talk about supporters' trust, that would be the ideal opportunity if you want to do something mad like that. Even if you want to press ahead, take some feedback from someone. How will fans react to this? 
and it, it never really happened that stage. I think there was like one season where on the tickets it was uh, sports direct at stjamespark.com. Not a real email address, by the way. <laughs> you try and email us. And it didn't, you know, the, the city council refused to change any of the signs around the city. So it didn't, it didn't really happen. And all, all it did was create this massive divide. And that wasn't the only thing that irked fans at this time, because a familiar face returned to the club as director of football. Good evening, Joe Kinnear. He announced the job himself live on, on a radio station. Joe Kinnear took over from Derek Lambias, not that he knew his name. Uh, OK, I suppose the obvious question is, uh, Newcastle were yet to confirm your appointment. Why is that, Joe? Uh, well, I only signed the contract last night. So, um, unless that somebody speaking to uh, Mike, um, but it's been ongoing for the last three weeks. Okay. Well, Derek Lambesi was the um, director of football, and Derek and Derek's resigned, and the job came available. The Athletics Newcastle United correspondent Chris Woff goes on. Kinnear came in during his whole time as uh, director of football, which encompassed two transfer windows. He failed to secure any permanent signings whatsoever basically just spent a few months in almost obscure. It was absolutely bizarre that he was there in a position that nobody really felt he was qualified for other than Mike Ashley. And uh, yeah, just another one of those, when you, you go through the bizarre decisions that have been made throughout the, the 13 years of this ownership, Joe Kinnear getting appointed for a second time is just is probably up there among the most baffling, which is, is, is some serious, serious competition. At the turn of the year in 2015, Alan Pardew was replaced by coach John Carver. It was his first and is, to date, his only managerial role. John Carver managed to get that job out of convenience, the fact that he was there. That was it. That was the only reason he got the job, was because he was in the vicinity. That was it. There was no, you know, there was no rhyme or reason for giving John Carver that job, apart from, you know, just see it out at the end of the season and see what happens. He was never going to get the job long term, but at the same time, the damage that could have been done could have been ridiculous to the club. It, it, it could have sent us on a spiral downwards for for years if we hadn't have managed to avoid relegation that year on the last day of the season. That could have been the decision that came back to haunt everybody. And and I remember, I just remember how ridiculous that that period was when we were playing. The Leicester game stands out in my mind. He came out and told the media that Mike Williamson got himself sent off on purpose because he didn't want to play anymore. And I just thought, oh my God, this is... It, it became embarrassing. It's one of the only times as a football fan I've actually felt embarrassed of being a Newcastle fan was when I was when I was watching that. It was horrible. It was an awful, awful period. John Carver should have been nowhere near that job. Never. John Carver was replaced by former England manager Steve McLaren for the 2015-16 season and fans were underwhelmed. Taylor Payne. It's just like somebody's uncle who's wandered in, you know. It's like it's like a wedding party and it's about half one in the morning and everyone's finishing and he's just still hanging around talking to people and nobody really cares. And it felt really underwhelming. You might as well have just put a, a little bag of lettuce in charge of the team at the time. No, you know, it was just so, he was inoffensive, but it, it just didn't feel right. There was something that wasn't right about it. But then things changed as Rafa Benitez took over from McLaren. Former board member of the Newcastle United Supporters Trust, Linda Bush, describes the moment she found out. 
I just, I, I like, I'm, ting, I'm tingling down, down my spine now at the thought of a world-class manager who left Real Madrid agreeing to come to Newcastle and then staying after we get relegated. It's just, it's fairy tale stuff. It's utter fairy tale stuff for me. We'd waited a long time to have somebody like that that we could kind of put our trust in and invest in and, and sort of feel comfortable that there was somebody leading us. Newcastle was devoid of leadership for so long and then Rafa came along and it felt like that was the difference, that was the change. The reason why sort of Benitez was loved the way he was was yes, he represented this feeling of ambition. If he can come to this to the club and talk about history and stature and potential and ambition, all those things, then it was like, okay, we, we can believe in our club again. He believes in us, so we can believe in him. And so, but you know, Benitez felt special because it allowed people to believe in the club. And that was the best thing about him. And it was also the worst thing about him because unfortunately, uh, at Mike Ashley's Newcastle, ambition is a is a you know is an endangered is an endangered species. It doesn't it doesn't last for very long, and you know that is the reason that Benitez ultimately left. Why did it work so well under Benitez? Michael Cox explains. I mean, I think Benitez understood the limitations of the side. They didn't have a great number of sparkling attacking players there, and it was broadly speaking, quite a defensive style of play. I mean, usually a, a 5-4-1 and, you know, sometimes teams play 5-4-1 and there's a debate about whether it's a five at the back or a three at the back. I think that was definitely a five at the back, um, which wasn't something that Benitez has really done throughout his career. He was always a 4-2-3-1 man. So, yeah, he understood that this wasn't a, a side filled with attacking talents and took a step backwards. And I think that kind of almost synced up with you know, the disillusionment of, of the fans towards the the lack of big names coming in. And yeah, like you say, he was obviously hugely popular for his his off-field approach. Um, but I think his, his on-field approach was, yeah, in itself not particularly sparkling and not memorable and certainly a long way away from, you know, the, the idea that we're often uh, told that Newcastle fans love attacking football. And Benitez worked out how to appeal to the fans both on and off the pitch. I got a, I got an email off Wendy Taylor, who was the press officer at the time, and she said, Rafa would like to speak to some fans at the training ground. Would you be interested in in coming in and having a chat with him? And I was like, oh, yes, of course I would. Absolutely. So um, we, got, we, got, we got to go over and, and talk to him, and it was supposed to be a 45-minute meeting, and it lasted four hours, and finished with him explaining how to defend a corner using a chair and using me as a striker, which was, you know, we didn't ask him to do that. But that's what he did, <laughs> because that's what he was like. Benitez has since departed, and Newcastle finished the disjointed 2019-20 season in an uncertain 13th under Steve Bruce. But what of Mike Ashley himself? Has he accepted that things haven't gone as planned? Chris Woff. I mean, he says himself that he recognises he made, makes mistakes. He doesn't very often speak publicly about his relationship with the club but, but on the rare occasion he does he usually does admit that he that he's made mistakes the, the main issue I've got is not the fact that he makes mistakes it's that he repeats them he never learns from them so are there any positives to take from the 13 years of Ashley's reign well we're not Sunderland I'd say maybe the one would be that you could argue they're on a, they're a decent financial footing so if someone else ever was to come in they aren't they don't have masses of debt other than the money that Magashi himself has into the club, which is around about 100, 110 million, which if and when he sells 
would be repaired to my gashes, so in theory it would be debt free. So that sense, yes, I think that's probably, if I'm going to try and find a positive, that would be about as close as I could possibly get that I'm on a decent financial foot and certainly compared to when he came in. The unfortunate thing was it Newcastle actually became an, an extension of Sports Direct as opposed to um, kind of a way of furthering his brand or a way of making it more expansive or better and, and stuff like that. that it felt like it was a chance to to expand Newcastle and actually what happened has been a sort of retraction of Newcastle. It just looks like the most sort of miserable marriage imaginable. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's been a loveless marriage from, from day one, really. Um, and, you know, the, the, the honeymoon ended very, very quickly. I mean, I can remember those days where he was sort of sitting in amongst the fans and... <laughs> Necking a pint, necking a pint live on TV. Just a word about the Arsenal physio. We'll see uh, Mike Ashley <laughs> do what the Geordies do best. Is he in a rush? That seems, um, you know, I think that was about as good as it got, that, that um, the away game where he necked a pint in about five seconds. Next time on Beyond the Headline. I think people got tired of it and I think a lot of Newcastle fans just kind of switched off and were just waiting for the answer. And because we never got an answer, it, it, it just felt like it fizzled away. The takeover that never was. Ashley agreed to sell and it was done. And you know, it was done and dusted. It's been there, it's ready to go. All that was waiting was was sign-off from the Premier League. So it was done, it was agreed, um, it was real. Why did it all go wrong? What matters when you're trying to buy a Premier League football club is whether you meet the Premier League's rules on the owners and directors. And this brings us to the big issue, the piracy. And where did Newcastle United go from here? Beyond the Headline was produced by Abby Patterson for The Athletic. The reporting was by Nick Miller and Ian McIntosh. Executive producer was Ian McIntosh. For more information about the Newcastle United Supporters Trust, visit nufctrust.co.uk. So I hope that's sufficiently whetted your appetite. To listen to episodes two and three, just search for Beyond the Headline in your usual podcast provider. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Pod on the Tyne, along with Chris Woff and George Colgan. Thanks very much for listening. (laughs) 